Thank you, Alex. My name is Josiah, and I am one of the pastor elders here at Trinity, and it is a wonderful privilege to be able to study the Word of God and to preach the Word of God this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm missing someone right now. Recently, we had a third child, Miss Clara May. I'm sorry, I don't have any pictures. You have to look at my face while I tell you this. Three weeks old tomorrow, um, and I cannot wait till we're back together so that you can see her from a bit of a distance. But nonetheless, I look forward to next week when we do worship back together for those of you who can make it. I've got a question for you, but before I do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for giving us songs to sing and making us a singing people as we were singing then. My God is the ancient of days. Though the nations rage and the kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one thing reigning over all. And I will not fear, for this truth remains, for my God is the ancient of days. Despite what happens in this world, you remain true. Despite what we see a thousand years ago and a thousand years in the future, you remain the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Father, as we study your word this morning, and as I preach your word, I pray that you would go before. God, that you would pour out your spirit on your people, that you would soften our hearts to receive your word, that we may be encouraged, that we may be convicted. God, so that we may live lives that glorify you, that find you to be truly our all in all. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, I have a question for you this morning. And that's always a great way to start a sermon when no one's actually in the room. And if you're with me, I'd ask you to raise your hand. For, so maybe those few of you that are here, I'll ask you to raise your hand. When I say that something is exclusive, do you believe that to be a positive or a negative thing? Now, I'm not talking about cheap exclusivity. Something like a mail-in offer or an email from a restaurant or store you shop at that says, exclusive deal, this time only, that you know 100,000 other people received. Or an exclusive credit card membership that appears in your mailbox that they somehow got your address every couple days. This type of exclusivity is completely worthless. It has no value because in reality it's not exclusive. But exclusivity can just also be plain awful and mean. You, while growing up and likely are trying to teach your children now to not be exclusive towards other kids or other people based on what family they come from, the color of their skin, or many other reasons. In these kind of situations, we want to be inclusive and we want to include people in our lives, be friendly and, and love others, right? But for some situations, Exclusivity is actually a really positive thing. Having exclusive access to your bank account is good, or your personal records, or you want an exclusive marriage, or not that I've necessarily had the opportunity, but an exclusive restaurant just carries a certain weight of gravitas if you can go eat at it. Unfortunately though, in today's culture, 
inclusivity has become a prerequisite for religion to be worthwhile. So we are tempted both subtly and explicitly as believers to adopt a more inclusive approach to our worship. Like us, Israel had consistently not been exclusive in their worship of God and had lacked exclusivity and it led to their misery. Time and time again, they turned to other idols and other gods for happiness, for marriages, for food, and so many other things. But as we've seen in Isaiah, and we'll see here in chapter 44, God brings his people to bankruptcy to give them access to the wealth of treasure that is exclusively himself. And this morning in chapter 44, we're going to see that there's an exclusive promise from an exclusive provider who is the exclusive redeemer. So if you would, please look with me in Isaiah 44. And I'm just going to comment real quick and say there is so much in this chapter as there has been multiple Sundays that we can't touch on. And I just want to encourage you to study this for yourself as well. I hope you read it before. And when we go further in Isaiah, I hope you read ahead. But I also want to encourage you after you've heard the preaching of the word to go back and read it again and see what the Lord shows you. So we see an exclusive promise in verses one through five. And that first part of the exclusive promise is that it's made to God's chosen people, as we see in verses one through two. The end of chapter 43 and the beginning of chapter 44 actually go together. And it's a connected thought. And Isaiah transitions out of the previous chapter with a command for God's people to hear the truth of whose they are. The beginning of chapter 44 serves not to contrast what we've previously read in chapter 43, 27, and 28, that they have sinned and therefore I, being God, will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. It's not to, God has already promised them complete desperation. But the point of the transition is that desperation and destruction is not Israel's final word. God has more for them. God has a plan for his people. And he has had a plan for his people from the beginning. Israel is God's people because he made them and he chose them. If you can remember back to previous sermons or just previously throughout your study of the Bible, you'll see that Israel was not more holy or righteous than other nations when they were chosen. If you trace Israel's history back, we're reminded that God didn't choose them because they would be great even. He doesn't say, he, he does say he will make them great, but when he calls Abraham, he's not finding some sort of diamond in the rough with some, a little bit of help to make a great nation. Abraham more than likely was a pagan worshiping multiple gods in Ur. Israel is special because they are called. And because they are called, they will receive a gift as we see in verses three to five. And it guarantees that they will receive help in the midst of their desperation and judgment. You see, it wouldn't be far-fetched for someone reading through the book of Isaiah to almost look at God like he's looking at their failing child through some sort of, like a parent with mom goggles, sitting in a parent-teacher conference, just constantly assuming that the teacher's wrong, right? We've all been there. However, unlike a parent, 
looking at their failing child, believing that they're the smartest child since Albert Einstein, God looks at his people knowing that he will make them righteous and he will make them worthy by looking at them through the lens, not of mom goggles, but through the lens of Jesus Christ, his chosen serpent, servant who will step in their place to take their sins so that God can say, I will be their God and they will be my people. God moves from the promise of exile at the end of 43 to reassure Israel of whose they are. He created them and he formed them. And the value of God's people is 100% correlated to the fact that they are his. We do not create value. I do not create value to God. We do not prepare ourselves well enough to be accepted or desired. But God finds value in you. He delights in you despite that, because of him, his goodness. And at the end of Isaiah 43 and 25, it says, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake. It's by his goodness. Listen, God delights in you because you are his. And because God delights in his people, he makes a promise to give them himself. This promise that God would be with his people is not new. But this promise here is a more explicitly revealed promise here in Isaiah. Throughout history, God has called his people and he has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. God says it in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. In Deuteronomy 31, God says that he will go before them. Time and time again, God promises to be with his people. But what Isaiah is promising here, specifically, is a further revelation of the promise made to Abraham in chapters 12 and 15 of Genesis. That God would make him into a great nation, and that he would give him a land, and that he would provide a promised seed, a special child. You See, in this covenant that God makes with Abraham, God performs a special, very unique sign to us, the Western reader, in Genesis 15. And in that promise, God promises that he would keep both parts of the covenant. And you can read this for yourself, as I mentioned in Genesis 15. And what you'll see is God tells Abraham to bring him a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And then God tells Abraham to cut them in half and essentially make a path. And then God causes Abraham to have a deep sleep. And while sleeping, a flaming torch, and a smoking fire pot, excuse me, smoking fire pot, and a flaming torch pass between the pieces of animal. At first glance, your thoughts in reading this should be, what the heck just happened? (laughs) That makes, that's just weird, because it's different to our culture, for sure. Well, I'm so glad you asked. Why are there animals on the ground, and why did a torch pass through them? In ancient Near Eastern tradition, When two countries went to make a covenant with one another, this is the ritual they would perform. And as the leaders of the nations walked through the animals, what they were stating is, as has happened to them, so may happen to me if I break the covenant. In this event, not only is God saying he will keep the covenant 
on behalf of both parties because he put Abraham to sleep. But he is also stating that he will take the punishment if either side breaks the covenant. There's a lot there that we don't have time to unpack. But what I want us to see is that from the beginning, God has kept the covenant for his people. In the Old Testament, he kept it by being with them and going before them. In the New Testament, he kept it by sending his perfect law-abiding incarnate God's son, Jesus Christ, to keep the covenant perfectly and take the punishment, the penalty for those who didn't and couldn't. And then God poured out his spirit when Jesus died. Remember, the curtain was torn and then an ax, his spirit falls And now God is in his people, with his people, keeping the covenant so that any good God's people do is by the Spirit, keeping the covenant. Do you see the novelty and the shocking nature here, especially through the Old Testament here? This is the same promise that is made in Joel 2, Ezekiel 36, and Jeremiah 31, that God will give his people his spirit, so that they can follow his law, so that they can follow him. The promise from God regarding his spirit was that previously, that it would go before his people, and then God would have his spirit fall on specific leaders, but now is different. God is promising that his spirit will pour out on all of his people. So what happens when God's spirit pours out on his people? Excuse me. God gives a picture of vitality, saying that thirsty land and streams on dry ground, they will spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Notice how God doesn't just simply replace them, but he restores them. Dry land, useless land, becomes rich and lush. If you haven't been out west, or if you have been out west, excuse me, to like Arizona, like Phoenix, you've seen dry ground. Phoenix averages eight inches of rain a year. Just to put in perspective, we average 54. Now you understand why Arizona looks like a desert land, while Florida looks like swampland. The ground is useless where there is no water. And God is promising now to give them rich, rich water. You see, even though God's people have not realized it, they are thirsty for him. They want him. They need him. We were created to commune with God in the beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? They walked with God. First created beings had deep intimacy communing with God. And then it was taken away by sin to the point that God's people didn't realize they were thirsty. And I ask you this morning, are you thirsty? Does something seem to be lacking from your life? Do you lack vitality? Do you lack peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, love? Do you lack power? Do you have anxiety? See, we make the same mistake of being thirsty, but not realizing it, with our bodies, right? Often we have trained ourselves to 
respond to our physical cues for water by eating food or filling ourselves with other drinks. And the same with our spiritual lives. We are spiritually thirsty, but we fill ourselves with things that are not of God, expecting them to satisfy our spiritual thirst. And the outcome is misery. When we see our weakness, when we, when we come to that place where we realize we are thirsty, we don't have to make ourselves not thirsty or fix it on our own. Romans 8.26 tells us this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind, what is the mind of the Spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Are you thirsty? Are you weak? Run to God. John Piper says, our future can look bleak for two reasons. One is that the prospect of misery is coming. The other is the prospect that happiness is not coming. And isn't virtually all the work of the human heart exhausted by these two things? Fearing future misery and thirsting for future happiness? If so, then Isaiah's promise is just what we need. When the Spirit is poured out into our heart, fear is taken away, and thirst is satisfied. Or to put it another way, if the Spirit has taken away what is fearful out of our future and put what is soul-satisfying into our future, then He has given to us full assurance of hope. Without God's Spirit, we are left with fear and without hope. Are you sitting in your home watching this live stream with hope? When you look at your life and the life around you, the world around you, are you filled with anxiety and questions? Or do you believe that a future, a good future is coming? And I'm not talking about a future that, a hope that says, you know what, if we just band together and do better work, then we'll have happiness. No, I'm talking about a good future that is outside of you. A rescue. I mean, do you have peace which passes all understanding that no matter how hard you try to help out and watch the world become better and it continues to fall apart, you still have a peace which passes all understanding? Do you have security that God is holding you and is closer than anyone else? even though he knows the darkest parts of your heart. If you feel overwhelmed in this world, if you feel weak, good. Seriously, good. We are weak. Your leaders, your, your elders here at this church, we are weak men who are desperate for our God. We are desperate for the Spirit of God. Without the Spirit, we have no power. If you have never experienced this power, this presence of God, this peace that I'm talking about, I want to invite you to respond to him. Confess your sin, confess your independence, and turn to your Father who loves you, who created you, who is calling you. You see, in verse 5, we see how these people respond to his spirit, and it's very simple. It's nothing over the top, and I want you to pay attention to what it is and what it isn't. This one will say in verse five, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand that the Lord's and the name himself by the name of Israel. 
It's just simply, I am the Lord's. It's not, look what I can do now. It's not, look what I've become. It's, look whose I am. Leading up to this moment, God has broken his people down and brought them to the point of exile, to the point of desperation. And God's people are desperate and weak. And God's people are desperate, excuse me, God's people, a characteristic of God's people is that they are weak and they run to him for strength. That's why Paul boasted all the more in his weakness. God has time and time again given his people structure to be his people. He gave them the garden and they walked with them and failed. He gave, called them a special people. They, they failed. He gave them the law. They failed. He gave them prophets. They failed. Judges. They failed. He gave them a king. They failed. Time and time again. God, it's, we've proven to God time over and over that we fail. But in that weakness, you know what we do? We cry, Abba, Father. And do you know what he does? He comes. He comes to us because his heart is gentle and he is kind and he is good. And so I, I, don't, I don't belabor this idea of us being weak to make you feel bad. But I want us to see, and God didn't bring, God bringing his people to bankruptcy wasn't like, ha, look at you, look how you can't stand on your own. No, he's bringing his people to bankruptcy was to say, you need me. I've been saying you need me from the beginning. Come to me, please. So what does God's spirit mean for the Christian? For one, as I mentioned, we are now able to walk as covenant keepers. Not, we don't walk perfectly, we fail all the time. But the spirit inside of us convicts us, corrects us, and leads us to walk in goodness. We have the fruit of the spirit. We can love. We have peace. When you look out around you in the world, when you see this pandemic, when you see the government changing, when you have strife in your family because you disagree on an issue, you don't have peace because it's just, okay, it'll work itself out. No. You can have peace, which passes all of that, because you have the spirit inside you. You see, another thing on what this means for the Christian. As we walk out the covenant, we walk as Christ walked. Christ, being filled with the Spirit, died in our place to fill us with the Spirit. So we walk with the same power, as it says in Romans 8, 11, that raised Christ from the dead. We are not weak anymore because we have the Spirit of God inside of us. Our flesh is weak, we fail, but God has said that the Spirit of God is inside of you. And we have continuous access to the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 reminds us to be filled with the Spirit of God. This is a continuous reminder. Continually, if you translate that literally in the Greek, this idea of continually be filled with the Spirit. Time and time again. Why does God tell us to do it time and time again? Why, we'll say this again in a minute. Why does God constantly remind us something? Because we forget. <laughs> That's why he calls us sheep, right? <laughs> we talked about that recently. When we walk in the Spirit, we walk like Christ. We walk in gentleness and love. We do not fear discomfort or death. We love beyond our physical abilities. We love beyond our preferences. We love how Christ loved. We fight sin and we put to death the sinful habits that constantly attack our lives. We speak boldly the gospel like we see in Acts 2. 
we live as people whose lives are not our own, but who have been bought and who have been touched and moved and infected with the Spirit. We are not our own. And our response to being given the Spirit is not, now look what I can do. No. Our response to the Spirit is, I am yours, God. Well, it seems obvious that Isaiah, to the point that Isaiah wouldn't have to keep writing here, but the Spirit comes from an exclusive provider. For God to give himself means that it has to come from himself, right? It means that he alone is the source of the Spirit. God reminds Israel, starting in verse 6 through 8, of his resume, that he is the first and the last, that there is no one like him, that there is no other rock. And why does God feel the need to remind his people of how great he is? He's not some sort of narcissist who needs to be loved. It's because we keep forgetting. We keep running to other things. 25 times in Isaiah, the prophet speaks against idols. It's clear from studying scripture that the main theme is turning away from idols and turning to God. As C.S. Lewis put it so eloquently, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not to be strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when, we, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased, church. We don't turn to idols because we have legitimately sought the depth of God and found him lacking. We follow idols because they're all around us and we think they'll satisfy and we're pleased with that. See, but the greatest, the first, the last, and I'll say it again, the creator of all things, the same spirit that literally raised Jesus Christ from the dead is inside you and is calling you and is calling me. So rather than just simply explaining that the idols we consistently fall for time and time again are worthless, God reminds us that he is the answer. The antidote to idols isn't just simply removing them, but it's also filling them with the goodness of our God. We were created to worship. I was created to worship. You were created to worship. Who or what are you worshiping today? You see, the foolishness of idols is so kind for the Lord to remind us, not just of how great he is, that should be enough, but because we are too simply pleased, or how did he say it? We are far too easily pleased. He reminds us of the foolishness of our idols too. He shows us that they're submitted, idols being submitted to their creator, and they're also submitted to the material they come from. In verse nine, he shows us that the, the light and the idols themselves, they bring no profit. And the Lord through Isaiah is so creative here. He gives us a little play on words from verse two, because we are created beings and thus being created beings fall 
submissive to the creator, right? Then, as created beings, we run out, take a piece of wood, make an idol, we being they, because I don't think any of you are carving idols, but just in case, we carve an idol and we think, ha, look, this is an idol. Well, that idol itself is submissive to you. That is fashioned and created are from the same root word there. God, do you see the progression isn't the right word? The regression, the dissension of value, we being less than God, go on and create something that is actually less than us, and then we worship something less than us? We'd be like, duh, that, that's stupid, foolish. Sorry, my kids might be listening. <laughs> it's foolish. <laughs> And secondly, he even takes it a step further, right? We know we're, we're created in, in the image of God as to be, um, that the world would be submissive to us, that we would um, tend it and that we would be stewards of the world. And so what does he even do? He says that the material it's made from, it's even less than the material it's made from. It's less than the cedar tree that was cut down. So he just takes it even a step further. Finally, we see, and I'm just going to read this because he says it so explicitly, that this creating and worshiping idols comes because people are deceived and their idolatry leads just to further deception and a deluded heart. Looking at 44, verse 17, and the rest of it, he makes into a God, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand no one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also break, baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Do you hear the sarcasm here? I, I, I do it for inflection because it's there in context. Isaiah, his, his tone is sarcastic, saying they're, they're not even asking these very simple questions. They don't consider the foolishness of what is done. But come on, guys. You're, you're sitting there, Josiah. I don't worship a block of wood. I've literally never bowed down to a block of wood in my life. This has no relevance in my life. Obviously, I know that. We don't carve figures out of money. And you, some of you probably are thinking that already. We don't have figurines of Netflix. I don't have a picture of Michael Scott that I look at. We don't have, we might have autographs of celebrities or athletes, but let's be real. Very few of us have something which we would call a shrine. The reality though is that idolatry, idol worship, looks a lot different in our Western culture and it's a lot sneakier. In the ancient Near East, and, and understand the principle of what, what they're doing when they worship idols here. In the ancient Near East, they would gather as many gods as possible so that they could have success and happiness and a full life. And so while we don't collect different figurines that we can be like, okay, you're gonna give me a full life, you might give me a full life, you might give me a full life, one of you, you'll take care of this for me, right? No, but what we do instead, we turn to sex, success, uh, our work, our children, church, all these different things that aren't actually God, and we expect them to give us happiness 
to give us joy, to give us fullness of life. See, we see this in a couple ways real quick. And for one, the American parenting style. I think this is exposed a lot and I'm constantly tempted to do this. We want to put our kids in every activity possible because we hope that one of these things is going to lead to success or give them happiness of life. We're teaching our kids that you got to do more stuff so that you can live a happy life. Tempted with, it with work. If I can just get a little bit more success, if I can land this big sale, land this big contract, then I'll be happy. If I can get married, I'll be happy. If I can have more children, I can be happy. If my children would just listen to me, I'll be happy. <laughs> if I watch more Netflix, if I, if I have more money, you, if I plan the next great vacation, I could go on and on. If I could just go back to the church building, then I could have a spiritual life. If I could just sing with people again. Now, some of these are really good things. Nothing's inherently wrong with putting your children in a sport and enjoying that. God created us to run and do things like that. And being in the church building is great. Singing with people is a glorious, wonderful thing. We've talked about that before. We're going to actually talk about that with Justin on uh, the next conversations that build up. These are good things. But when they become our source of happiness and joy, and we realize when we're not doing them, when we're not maybe seeing people and having fun with friends, that our life becomes less or not joyful, that's a trigger. That should be a sign to say, hey, that has become an idol in my heart. And I hope during this time of isolation, social distancing, I shouldn't say isolation, social distancing, idols have been exposed in your heart, in your mind. I know they have for me. I enjoy sports, which is a good thing. I like playing them. I like watching them. You know what I haven't been able to do in seven weeks? Sports of any kind. I'm not watching horse on Facebook. And what God has shown me is that's an idol for you. Not that I go to it and worship it, but that I find excessive amounts of joy, that I look to it to give me things of the creator rather than the creator itself. Maybe in this season, you've been stressed over the virus. You've given into anxiety over the virus or anxiety over the idea that your freedoms are being limited. Were there restrictions on your financial well-being? Were you limited in how many people you could see? Do you feel less security because the political climate is becoming less and less settled? It's more and more unsettling. In all of these, and I mentioned a lot more than I planned on, when we look to these for joy and happiness, we're diluting our heart. And in these idols, they have spirit, right? Not spirits of God, but spirits. As 1 Timothy tells us, when we follow these other spirits, we sear our conscience. By running to these idols, we trade a holiday at the sea for mud pies. We trade peace for anxiety. We trade joy for misery. We trade meaningful friendship and relationship for codependence and fighting. God wants to make it abundantly clear. There is only one source. He is the exclusive provider for life. It is found in him and in no other. 
I want to invite us, as those idols come to our hearts and mind, even as I'm preaching, I, I ask and I pray that you don't just justify them, but you take them to the Lord. May he purify your enjoyment of sports. May he purify your marriage. May he purify your friendships and that they become more of something that you see them as a gift from God and not the gift giver itself. May he redeem them. Finally, the exclusive redeemer. And we'll pretty much wrap up with this. This section of scripture ends with God commanding his people to remember truths again. Have you ever tried to remind someone of something you know that they know? That's what God's doing here. He wants us to remember that his people are his and that he has blotted out their transgressions. And now to rejoice with all of creation. Do you see that here at the end of the passage, right? Redemption isn't just for us to enjoy ourselves. Redemption actually goes out to all of creation. In verse 23, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and he will be glorified in Israel. All of creation rejoices in the redemption of God's people. Why should we walk around as if our lives are lost as believers? Despite the circumstances surrounding us, why should we be afraid? Why should we be terrified if our freedoms are taken away? If the political climate changes? Why should we be afraid if we see people without wearing a mask? You want to have wisdom and looking at two completely opposite sides of the spectrum? Run to the spirit. Run to God. He will give you perspective. You might land in either way, but one thing I can promise you this, you will love your brother or sister in Christ more, no matter where they land. God is a lot more concerned with us loving him and knowing him and loving our brothers and sisters than where we land on any issue. Today it's COVID-19. Tomorrow it's going to be something else. Run to Jesus. We have been redeemed and have been given the spirit of God. We are not left on our own. We are not left to figure this out on our own. We now have what we were created for. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. The man who God, excuse me, the man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may have been denied him. Or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Have you ever experienced that? Finally got what you wanted. Only for that happiness to, yeah, it's there, but it's not really what you thought it would be. Or if he must see them go one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss. For having the source of all things, he has in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For he now has it all in one. And he has it purely. That's without lacking, without tainted. It's perfect. Legitimately. Forever. Church, this is the promise God has given us. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
God wants to know you. God knows everything about you, right? He created you. He formed you. That's what he's saying there. He's like, why would you not run to me? I know everything there is to know about you. He's calling us to run to him. My wife and I were talking this week about how different it is in a response from a child when they do something wrong and you don't see it. How, as a parent, I can be sitting working. It happened the other day. My daughter accidentally broke something, but she accidentally broke it because she was actually disobeying to begin with. And she came to me and didn't hide it. She came to me exposed and was just like, Daddy, I broke the chair. And immediately said, I was standing on the table like I wasn't supposed to do. And as a parent, as a failing parent, my heart is, come here, let me take you in. Let me comfort you. I forgive you and I love you. Our Father is calling us the same way. Through Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life. That's why Jesus is referred to as our big brother sometimes in scripture. This idea that he showed us the way and he becomes our way to the Father. Through repentance, through turning of our sin, through confessing our sin to Christ, we come to the God that we were created to be with and we cry, Abba, Father, and we have that intimacy our hearts long for, that we're thirsty for. We are called to worship him exclusively and as the creator and desire of all, designer of all, he knows what our hearts want best and what they need. We need him and he is good. You see, this is why the parable of the great, in the parable of the great pearl, excuse me, the parable of the pearl of great value in Matthew 13, the man sells everything he has to buy it. This is why Paul counted all things, all things being all of his accomplishments as rubbish to know God. This is why David danced upon the Ark of the Covenant being returned to Jerusalem because God's presence was with him. This is why Christians continue to meet and worship Jesus in other countries where they are persecuted and hunted and raided. This is why Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian went back to the Ayuka people only to be killed so that they may know God. This is why so many Christians silently continually spurn sinful desires and put to death sin so that they may know God more. This is why Jesus went to the cross for us to be restored to the Father. We are given everything our hearts could ever desire. Remember, when Jesus goes to the cross, he dies, he breathes his final last breath in the book of Matthew. And what happens? The veil that separated God from his people was ripped in half, tore from top to bottom, signifying that God's spirit would be poured out. And it was. I have a simple question for you this morning. Do you know him? Not do you know about him. Not have you been to church. Not have you even read your Bible. Not do you know theological truths about him. You understand doctrine. But do you know him? Do you know the one who has peace beyond all, under all understanding? Who forgives all sins? Who is transcendent above space and time? The one who created you. Who formed you. 
if you don't know him this morning, personally, if you have not said, I am the Lord's and I'm a part of his people, I want to invite you to come to Jesus right now where you're at, in your living room, in your office, wherever you are, to confess your sin, to turn from your sin, meaning repentance, and run to Jesus, and then pray and ask him for his spirit. God has promised his spirit to his people. He's not hiding, trying to be sneaky, like he's some sort of code to be cracked. He wants to be known. If you're listening to this and you're a Christian, but you would describe your life as dry and not rich and lush, like a willow flowing by the river, it's not full of joy, but fear and stress and anger and hopelessness. I want to ask you, are you being filled with the spirit of God that God has promised to you? Luke eleven thirteen 13 from Jesus says this, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Our God, as I mentioned, he's not hiding. He wants to be with you. He wants to be found. That truth is both profound and comforting. We should consistently be praying to God to fill our hearts. We should do things that spur our hearts to be mindful of his presence. If not, as I mentioned earlier, we will neglect him and we will drift and our hearts will become seared as it says in 1 Timothy 4.2. If you feel weak, good. Jesus calls for all who are thirsty and needy. If this world is beating you up, God has made a way to give you life, real life. And I, while preparing this, I, I just really felt this way specifically. This isn't a call exclusive to men, but for a moment to just speak to men, very similar to what Justin mentioned in his exhortation about singing. Men, do not put on a front as having it all together or being strong. If you're leading your family, lead your family as a weak man who runs to the cross. We are in desperate need of our Jesus, each and every one of us. And by that, you will lead your family well because you will lead them to Jesus. If you would, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but that you have made a way to save us, to be with us, that, that we can cry out to you, Abba, Father. Father, I ask and pray and plead that you would please make us a people who run to you, that we would not be people who hide from you, that we would not be people who hide our lives from you, God, but that we would be exposed exclusively to you, that we would exclusively worship you, God, that we would experience your presence and your spirit in a new way as you have promised us. This is not by our own conjuring up. God, you are the one who has promised your spirit. This is your promise in your word, Father, and we thank you so much for that, that it's not up to us and our ability to make the spirit happen, God, but that you are the one who provides the spirit. God, convict us and ex expose our hearts where we are worshiping idols, Father. May we repent and turn to you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.